I suppose you've heard of the the epic uh, serious condition afflicting Christians everywhere. It's sometimes known as SGS syndrome or small God syndrome. I have the remedy. It's right here. And if you would turn in your Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 40, uh, we can look at this remedy together. Um, I've already kind of set it up, so if you're new to the class, welcome. If you've been here for a while, uh, th- this is... This is a turning point here because this whole book has been about the sins of God's people, the failure of leaders, the rampant uh, examples of injustice and poverty and and uh, unrighteousness that is tolerated in the nation. Uh, the Assyrian Empire is is um, gobbling up every nation around them. They are growing in power. And uh, we see at the very, very end of our section in, in Isaiah 38-39, God thwarting the Assyrian Empire um, through um, the weakness, really, of Hezekiah as he prays and God delivers. And then Hezekiah ends his life on such a, such a sour note. I mean, this is one of, I don't know, you ever watch a movie and you're all into it and it's going along and everything's going great and, and you get to the last scene and the, the thing that you didn't want to happen, happened, right? And then roll credits and you go, that can't be how it ends. And, and then, you know, this goes along with what uh, David Gibson was doing a couple of weeks ago as he looked at Moses and David and Solomon. And all three of those men were godly men. They were wise men. They walked with God, at least for a season. All three of them ended their ministry poorly. And, and I don't think that's there to discourage us and say, well, why even try if that's how even the best of the best conclude their life? I don't think that's why it's there. I think it's there to remind us that our hope can never be in a human source. Our heroes can never be human heroes, ultimately. There's only one rescuer and only one helper. Um, and you know, you know, we, we've known this, right? We, we've tried human solutions, we've tried financial solutions, we've tried medical solutions, and we've seen how sooner or later all of those things fail. And, and what we need is a support that's supernatural, that's divine. Uh, our help and our hope must come from the Lord or we have no help or hope. And, and that's that's what Isaiah has been getting at. That's what we've been building up to is you're supposed to get to the end of 39 and go, <laughs> well, then what help is there? And then we flip the page and here the help comes, right? The, the comfort that uh, the um, uh, Jewish uh, nation of, of uh, Judah was looking for in Isaiah's day, uh, the same help that we need today. Uh, is in the Lord. So we're gonna we're gonna break down this this chapter. It, it's almost um, <laughs> it, it's it's almost wrong to to put this under a microscope to me because the the power of of the text is you you read it and you get to the end and you go you just go right. That's what you're supposed to do. So um, I don't want to mess it up by slowing it down too much, but I think there are some. Some uh, things here we can glean as we uh, as we walk through it together. So Isaiah chapter forty, 
uh, we're going to call this section the incomparable God. Because that's the point. There is no one like him. There is no one who is his equal. No one who can help and hope. And um, so just look up on the board here for a minute uh, just to kind of orient you. This is, Isaiah is a big book, and we can get lost in the details pretty easily. So just as a reminder, when we started uh, several months ago, um, these prophecies against Judah, right, the, the specific um, indictment of God upon the nation of Judah and their leaders, and then that gets broadened out, we saw, into prophecies against the surrounding nations. As God says, it's not just you, Judah, that has the problem. It's all of these other pagan nations around you. And then that funnels down not to these judgments or discipline that's going to happen in a temporal sense, but remember what Isaiah says ultimately is that there is coming a day of judgment, a day of reckoning that's called in the Bible the day of the Lord. And uh, that's where everybody, every nation, every individual stands um, before the face of their creator and they give an account to him. And then uh, there's that middle section that we just came out of, about Hezekiah, it's it's one of the few narrative sections in the Bible where it, it's kind of like the, the first part of Isaiah is, is is giving you sort of this this overview. Judah's not in a good position. The northern kingdom is going to get carried off to Assyria. We're going to see that. We're going to watch that. And Isaiah is bringing these prophecies, and then uh, and then at the very end, that middle section, we're going to get a, a little. Um, biographical section with Hezekiah. We're going to track him through his ministry, uh, and we've just come out to see that. And again, Hezekiah was uh, a God-fearing man most of his ministry. Uh, He was a good king, as kings are evaluated in Scripture. But what we see is uh, our hope can't ultimately be in a human king. And uh, what God told uh, the judges way, way back in the book of Judges, when they were demanding a king, God says, you don't want a king. I alone can be your king. And uh, we see one more example of that in Mr. Hezekiah's life, as commendable as much of it was. So we turn the page and we come to Isaiah chapter 40. Now you have to remember there's a couple of things that change between Isaiah 1 to 39 and Isaiah 40 to 66. So just look at your notes here. Isaiah did not live to see the prophesied Babylonian captivity. Remember in chapter 39, verses 5 to 7, and other places in the book, uh, that that promised Babylonian captivity uh, is coming. But Isaiah is not going to live to see that. He's going to die, and that will happen after his ministry. The actual Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom will start in 605, and through a series of three attempts, um, the Babylonian ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, will come in those three efforts and finally take the the city of Jerusalem in 586. That's a red letter date. Now, these are some dates you need to know, so mark those down in your Bible if you need to remember them. But here's the thing. The prophecies in Isaiah 40 to 66, even though Isaiah is going to die before the Babylonian captivity, the prophecies in Isaiah 40 to 66 are going to look forward to the time after the Babylonian captivity. So we're going to read some things and you're going to go, what is this even talking about? And you just have to remember what Isaiah is talking about is he's talking about the hope that's going to happen on the other side of the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so he's looking even beyond his life at this point to hope in the future. 
And as we've seen, we see, first of all, a message of comfort, right? Isaiah 41, comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem, call out to her that her warfare has ended, okay? Well, this, um, uh, the, the threats of Assyria and then later on Babylon, that all that comes to an end. But, but notice this. Her iniquity has been removed that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What that probably is referencing is that uh, the Babylonian captivity has been complete, the, the 70 years as was prophesied, and uh, they have been disciplined, God says, double for their offenses, and now they will be free. Okay, that's probably what that's referencing. Now look at verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. What does that mean? And when does that happen? That verse should sound familiar to you. Yes, John the Baptist. Now, now so, so watch what just happened. Uh, Isaiah apparently is talking about the freedom from the Babylonian captivity, right? It's done, and they start coming back to the land. Their discipline has done. God has forgiven them. He's been kind to them. And then Isaiah does one of those millennial jumps, right? As he's fond to do. And, and of course, Mr. Isaiah is not the best of tour guides because he, he doesn't tell us when he, he's going from talking about something that's going to happen pretty much the present day to when he, something that's going to happen in the distant future or even into the end time. So, so it's up to us, the reader, to make that distinction. But we read that and we go, okay, there's going to be somebody who's going to prepare the way of the Lord, right? To make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Where did John the Baptist live? In the desert, in the wilderness. And uh, when we read the first uh, few chapters of the Gospels, uh, we hear about this, this guy who... Uh, uh, was no not making a fashion statement in his day, right? He, his his garments were uh, cam, camel's hair and a leather belt, and and uh, he was eating what locusts and wild honey, and you know sooner or later somebody is going to come up with some little little box trinket thingy that sits at the the checkout counter at Mardell called the John the Baptist diet, and it's going to be like locusts with honey, with some delicacy. You know, you watch, it's going to happen. Uh, but anyway, so John the Baptist is the one who fulfills this, right? And what does that do? That links the hope that we're going to read about here, not to just a relief from the Babylonian captivity, although that's in view. The hope that Isaiah is describing here, where does that ultimately point toward? To the Messiah. And and isn't that the point? Isaiah has been saying, you need divine help. And nothing's going to get better until he comes. That's the servant. That's, that's Emmanuel, right? God with us. That, that, that's this promised rescuer that we've read about since Genesis chapter 3. And we hear about him in Isaiah. Okay? Verse 4. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed in all flesh We'll see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, 
one of the themes of Isaiah that we've seen thus far is simply that the people, the leaders, the elders, and even the kings fail to trust in the Lord, right? And in his word. So watch Isaiah get out his yellow highlighter and just drive that point home. You cannot trust in people. You cannot trust in rulers. You cannot trust in military. There's only one thing you can trust in. Now, now watch, you know this section, okay? But that's the context. The context of this verse that we, we put on, you know, little things in our house and, and we tweet them and all that, and that's great. But the context of all this is the rampant failure of human solutions that we've seen year after year in the book of Isaiah. Okay? Here it is. Verse five. Uh, uh verse six. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? Here it is. All flesh is what? And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Uh, this is a great weekend to think about these verses. That real, real strong south wind we had yesterday. Dormant grass. What happens? There's just stuff blowing all over the yard, right? At least it was in my house. And Isaiah is saying, when you put your help and hope in human solutions, that's what it's like. It's like going out and picking that that dormant piece of grass and saying, I'm going to build my life on this. And then there goes the wind and it's gone. That's what it's like. You know this verse. Uh, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. And just in case you missed it, surely it's the people that are grass. So don't, what? Don't trust. Don't hope in them. Uh, I, our young theologians here, you, you need to get this, okay? Because we older people learn the hard way, most of us, right? You'll find some relationship someday and you'll think, oh man, that is life, right? If I could just have, and you watch, that relationship may be a wonderful gift of God. It may be your spouse someday and we praise the Lord for that. You cannot build your life on a relationship. You can't do it. It's chafing, it's striving after the wind, right? It's putting your hope in that blade of grass that, that blew across the yard yesterday. You can't do that in a relationship. You can't do that in any human solutions. You say, so what do we do? If I can't trust people, I can't trust relationships, I, I can't put my hope in that. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but there is something that lasts. The word of our Lord stands forever. God's word is eternal, isn't it? What does that mean? Just let's let's pull the car over for a minute and just talk about this. What does that actually mean, right? There's all these other options that the world says, invest in this, trust this, love this, go after this. This will make you happy. This will bring peace. This is going to help you. This is what life's about, right? There's all that stuff out there. And then we've got this 
stark, almost foolish sounding contrast that only God's word stands forever. What does that look like in your life, in a struggle or a situation? Maybe you have some examples or someone that can share examples of how we're tempted to hope in something else other than the word. This is the part where you talk, right? This is your cue. Give me some examples where, where, you, where you've seen the reality of this before. Yeah, thank you for that. That's beautiful. And we could, we could fill the rest of our time with, with stories like that, couldn't we? Just God's work in the midst of our struggle and his faithfulness to his word. Okay. Um, well, let's turn the corner here. And look at this. The rest of the chapter is all about who is the Lord and what does he do. Okay? So here's your mission, should you choose to accept it. I want you to look through the rest of the chapter. And I want you to write down who is God and what does he do. Okay? Um, there is a gold mine of wonderful things here, okay? And I want you to take a first effort up. We're going to do we're going to do a couple of different passes at Isaiah 40. Um, so take a few minutes, look at the rest of the chapter, and write down who is God and what does He do. Okay, God will not be incomparable in your mind or mine if we don't stop. And think about why he is, right? So that's how we're going to do this, okay? So take a few minutes, write down, and then we'll share. Okay, let me call time. And I want to encourage you um, during this week to read Isaiah 40. Uh, I, in fact, I'd challenge you to read it at least once every day and add to the list that you're making right now. There's so much there. And uh, if, if, you ever, if you ever find yourself struggling with that, that small God syndrome, uh, this is one of the places to go and, and meditate on the list of things that you're reading there, okay? So, but let's just take a few minutes and share, okay? What I'd love to hear is what did you find about who God is, what does he do, and uh, uh, so here's how this is going to work. Just give us the verse and then tell us what you saw, okay? And I'll, I'll be the scribe here and try to write down what we get here, okay? Uh, shout it out. Uh, who'd like to start us off here? The ruler, you said verse 10? Rewarder, there you go. Very good. Yeah, and you think about that. Yes, yes, right? You see that? So... All this time, we're looking for a ruler who will love God with all his heart, right, and lead the people. We haven't seen any. God goes after the elders and says, you're supposed to be the spiritual leaders. And, and they were, remember, they were taking bribes. They, they were getting, uh, people were paying them to get a good prophecy. Remember that? Remember the video that demonstrated that? And so now we have a shepherd, right, who's actually going to lead and care for 
his people. That's right. There's a contrast there. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's right. Very good. Someone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Yes. Very good. Okay. Someone over here. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ezekiel and Isaiah both go after the, the shepherds as a, a point of uh, condemnation and judgment. Someone else? Doing great. Yes. Well, And I appreciate you saying that because Weldon represents the youth amongst us, right? We wouldn't want to play football against Weldon, us old guys. We wouldn't want to run a race against Weldon, right? We, we wouldn't want to go up against him in, in you know, his calculus class because, you know, that was way, way a long time ago, right? So Weldon recommend, uh, re- represents the youths among us, right? The best of the best. Uh, but what does it say? You, even... Even Weldon's grow weary and tired, right? And, and there's mom right there saying, yeah, he sleeps every night, most nights, right? <clears throat> but God doesn't grow weary, does he? Um, what a great encouragement that when we're exhausted and we got nothing left, God's not even breathing hard, right? He's able to care for us even in our weaknesses. Good job. Someone else? Yes. He shows us that he is water for us, grass, dying grass. Okay. All right. So he is, you said water? Yes. Okay. Or we might say a, a source of nourishment, right? Yes. All right. Someone else? Mm-hmm. All right, good. Yeah, what, what verse do you see that in? Is that 12? <laughs> All right. Yeah, he's the creator. All right, someone else? This is, this is great, guys. Is this how you do your devotions? This is how you should do your devotions. You know, it, and, I, and I, I admit that I struggle with this, too. Sometimes, you know, you open it up. What's, what's my Bible reading plan say? I read it. I close my Bible, and I'm off to my day, and we wonder why we're not affected by it, right? We have to, we have to stop and, and put, it on, put it on low simmer and just marinate in... The truths that we're reading, um, I, and I, I meant what I said. We, we suffer. We suffer from a small God syndrome because we don't spend any time really thinking about how great and big He is. Okay, what do you got? You guys got anything over here? We got a couple of our young theologians jumped in. So, 
Yes, Ruth? Wow. Is that true even if our guy doesn't win the presidential election? You sure? Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, you, you see how relevant this is? Because I guarantee you, the, 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 the anxiety meds are going out at record proportions right now because it's an election year, right? Because we got... He's in complete control. The The... the The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants, right? That's So we can just go, the nations are dropping the bucket. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and, uh, one of my favorite parts of this, See if I can find it here. <clears throat> yeah, how how do you um, how do you communicate to somebody that you are really nothing? Um, all that. Let's see. Um, there's Greg's verse, verse 15. The nations are like a drop of the bucket, regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Lifts up the islands like fine dust, even Lebanon. And and then here it is, okay? 17. All the nations are as nothing before him, but that's not enough. They are regarded by him as less than nothing. See, when you're less than nothing, you're really nothing. Right? If, you know, some people think we go to the Bible to find self-esteem. No, no, no. If you go to the Bible and find self-esteem, you're not reading it right. You go to the Bible and you will find out you are worse and less significant than you thought you are when you started. But you will find something better. You find God esteem, esteem, right? You find that God is worthy. God is significant. And if we can be found in him, uh, finding an identity not in ourselves, but a derived identity in terms of his significance, that's where life begins. Very good. All right. Well, let's just as really we keep going and we'll do more of this next week. But let's let's just get started here. Verse 10. You mentioned this. He rewards, right? Verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Um, You know, that's a blessing and a curse, depending on what you think about it. You know, Isaiah has said for decades why does no one care about the injustice in the world? And you're supposed to be the people of God who care about the justice in the world, right? Well, guess what? The day is coming when God will recompense and he will judge. Uh, To some, everlasting condemnation. To others, everlasting life. But that day is coming where God will right every wrong. Someone mentioned, uh, actually that should be 11, uh, he will shepherd, he shepherds the people and contrasting again with decade after decade, priests, prophets, kings, leaders, elders who were corrupt and taking advantage of people. You, you remember what we read in the early chapters of Isaiah? The leaders were taking advantage of the least among them. The poor, the widows, the children. 
And Isaiah is like, what are you doing? Well, here comes a shepherd, right? Here comes a shepherd who will truly lead and care for his people. And, uh, and notice the imagery here. When Jesus gets up and he says, I'm the great shepherd. That's not like, oh, wow, what a, what a neat metaphor. That, that's what the Bible's been saying all along. That's Psalm 23. That's this text. It's Ezekiel 34, right? It, right? And, and, and you're supposed to get frustrated reading your Bible going, good night. When are we going to get a shepherd who actually cares for people? Well, here he is. He'll shepherd his people. And then, and then there's this section. And, and, and the, the goal of what Isaiah is trying to do here is he is trying to literally take your breath away in terms of who God is. That's what he's trying to do. Um, if, if we read this chapter and we don't walk away dumbfounded by the greatness of who God is and what he's done, then we, I don't know what else in the scripture is going to do that. So let's, let's just look at some of these, okay? Um, he created the massive structures of the universe. Uh, how much, who has held the waters in the palm of his hand? Okay, so here's my hand. How much water do you think I can hold there? Tablespoon maybe? Teaspoon? And then probably what's it going to do? It's going to leak out. So God says, <clears throat> my turn. And when God holds up his hand, he says what? I can put all the oceans in them. How much water is that? Yeah, I have no idea. I had to look it up. Um, you ready? 332 million, 519,000 cubic miles of water what's a cubic mile right it's a mile by a mile by a mile 332,519,000 cubic miles and that's an estimate for all intensive purposes what it's immeasurable yes yeah to make it first yeah yeah god doesn't make more water than he can hold in the palm of his hand right that sounds like a theological riddle doesn't it Angels on a pinhead or something like that. Um, look at the next part. Um, marked off the heavens by the span. What's a span? Yeah, it's the distance between your pinky and your thumb. Okay? So, so he, if, if we could go behind the curtain in the creation week, the Trinity's huddling up, right? And they're going, how big are we going to make the heavens? How big are we going to make the universe? Should we use a ruler? Should we use a yardstick? Should we use a, a laser distancing device? What it? I missed it, but it was funny. What's that? Oh. Oh, great. Well, that, that's good because that's the crescendo, right? That's okay. Okay, so what do we use? And God says, um, God says, what if I use my hand? And so he goes, let's measure the heavens. Ready? Mark. Mark. 
and you have the span of the universe, right? What do you say to that? God says, I'm not done. How about this? And I've calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance. God apparently has, in his utility shed, a massive scale way system that he can put all of the mountains in the world and measure their mass, measure their weight. How about this? Who's directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? Whom did he consult? And who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the paths of justice? Every single one of us in this room had to learn from somebody else. Right? That's what dependent creatures do. God never learns. He had no advisor. He has no counsel. He has no elders. He just knows all that. And you know, think about how that should change our prayer life for a minute. Because sometimes we talk to God like we're helping him out here a little bit. Like you don't know what's going on in my life. Or you don't understand the situation. Or or maybe we can help him by saying this is what I really think needs to happen. And, And you know what God does in his kindness? He treats those requests like when our two-year-old hops up in our lap and tells us, Hey, Dad, I'm going to help you fix the car today. And what do we do? We hug him. We say, Thank you, son. Why don't you come help out, Dad? You know. But that's really what we're like. He has no counselor, no advisor. The nations are as nothing compared to him. We talked about this. They're not just nothing, they're less than nothing. There's no ruler, there's no nation, there's no president, there's no kingdom, there's no, there's nothing that compares to him. Look at 18. Let's move from God compared to things in the universe to God compared things that we worship instead of him. Let's talk about idols. I can give my allegiance to the one who made the heavens and the earth, who put the mountains in the scales, who regards nothing, you know, the nations as less than nothing, who, who, uh, has no counselor, no advisor, right? There, there's option one. Or I can go cut down a tree. And I can put gold on it. And I can turn it into some sort of deity. And I can bow down and give my heart to it and my life to it. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna use it to run your oven. That's what uh, Ezekiel or Jeremiah says. Yeah, that's what you do. Yeah, yeah Jeremiah says, you know, you, one goes part in the oven, and the other is uh, an idol on the wall. And what was it? Is it Ezekiel who says, um, uh, you know, it, it's a, it's one of those insulting uh, things. It says, uh, you know, you put your idol up on the fence, and then the wind blows and it blows down. You have to nail it back up. And you're like, that's what you're worshiping, really? You can't even stand on the fence on his own, right? Um, and you know what, uh, and, and Jack can testify to this uh, in Cambodia, 
there are millions of people in the world that are bowing down to idols just like that, and they're giving their heart and their allegiance and their life and, and their well to do. Everything is, is built on a statue or a, a carved image. Man-made. And, and then we have to take a deep breath and say, yeah, we're Westerners, we're above that, we don't, we don't believe in idols. And <clears throat> right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, God makes it all, and then they're thinking these gods control it. That's right. Okay, so let's talk about Western idolatry, right? Uh, we typically don't put up Buddhas in our bathroom, but what do we do? We're, we we are master idolaters. We, we, we Our hearts are factories of idols that are immaterial. Um, or their stuff, or their relationships, or they're a medical cure, or they're it's it's control over my kids' upbringing, or it, it right? It's all this, all these things that we strive after, thinking that at least in this one area of my life, I can be God. And God says. Uh, Verse 21, how does God respond to our idolatry? Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. This is another self-esteem text. Isn't it? That's what we're like in God's sight. And, and you know, that, that's, God's not trying to put us down there. He's trying to level us in terms of reality. Who do we think we are? And to see how much we need Him. Look at this. He runs the 93 billion light year sized universe. That's 5.5 times 10 to the 23 in miles for those of you that uh, struggle with the light year concept. A light year is the distance that light travels in a year, right? So if you do the math, uh, that comes out to a lot of miles. 93 billion light years. Curtis Harris is back there thinking, yeah, but that doesn't include dark matter. I know, I know. We're just doing the visible universe here, but that's, that's okay. Uh, what we can see. Look at this. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Uh, can we just do a little exercise here? Because again, we're going to walk away here and we're going to be tempted to be like, okay, you know, another great day at church. Um, let's just let's just think about this for a minute, okay? Because we we need some meditation to help us to really digest this. Because some of us, when we hear numbers that big, we just go, okay, what's for lunch, right? We don't want to do that. There's the earth. Okay. And uh, uh, we're, hey, look at that. We're right there, right? Good enough? Granberry. I should have labeled it. So the earth, as you know, is part of a solar system. Let's uh, 
Can we hit those lights there so we can see this a little better? Just the first row. Amber, thanks. Just this first row. Thank you. All right, is that a little better? Okay. So look at this. Uh, there's the Earth right there. Okay, and we got the Sun and Mars and Jupiter and all these little elliptical orbits and, you know, Pluto's kind of way out here. We're not sure whether Pluto's a planet or not, and they keep taking votes. Yes, it's a planet. No, it's a planet. So I, anyway, so there's that. Okay, there's our solar system. Okay, and so we're right there. Well, that solar system is just one of lots of solar systems. Right? See, here's our solar system right there, and you got all these other solar systems running around. Uh, and it, it, you'll notice there's no like, you know, uh, there's no scale <laughs> down here because it just gets too big. But okay, so we're we're right here, and we got all these other solar systems. What is called your interstellar neighborhood. <laughs> That's right. And, and so, okay, so, so there we all these, you know, in our interstellar neighborhood, and that that. Interstellar solar system neighborhood is just part of the Milky Way, of which our little interstellar neighborhood is right there, right? And for those of you in the cheap seats over here, we got our little interstellar neighborhood is right there. Milky Way, your neighborhood of which you constitute one solar system, of which we make up one planet, of which we occupy a very, very small piece of geography on that planet. But we know that that Milky Way is really just part of a local galactic group. Now, this isn't from Star Wars. I know it sounds like it. It's not. No, this is actual real science here, okay? A local galactic group. So here's our Milky Way right there. And here is our galaxy neighborhood. You didn't know you had a galaxy neighborhood, did you? Okay, so we're just this little teeny tiny Milky Way. You say, well, how do we know all this? Because we have really cool telescopes and we can, we can map all this stuff out now. Look, they've even got, look, constellations you know. Ursa Major, Ursa, uh, what are those? The Big Dipper, right? You've heard of Andromeda. Right, Aquarius, right? All those constellations. See, there, Leo's way out here. Leo the lion. And that local galactic group of which we're just part of the Milky Way, which is just an area where we have one uh, solar system neighborhood and then one solar system within that and one planet within that, is a part of the Virgo supercluster, of which our local galactic group is part of the Virgo supercluster. Lots and lots and lots of galactic groups containing lots and lots and lots of galaxies containing lots and lots and lots of solar systems. We're not done yet. And that Virgo supercluster is a group of other superclusters. Okay? And that is just one, this Virgo supercluster in lots of superclusters, is just one little part of the observable universe. To whom will you liken me? 
Guys, God made that. And he runs it. And he holds it in his hand. Why are we worried? If he's for us. Why are we anxious if in the midst of all of that, he knows you by name and he's made you his own? Shouldn't we live differently in light of this? Shouldn't our faith affect how we respond? We're just a blip. And he loves us. And he says, I want to spend eternity with you. Father, would you make these things to change how we live, how we trust, how we worship, what we set our time on, what we set our affections on, how we respond to trial. There's no one like you. And even when we try to understand, even through just a, a few pictures like this, we, we can't. We're amazed. We stand in awe. Thank you that you care for us. Would you help us to trust you and to love you with all of our heart? In Jesus' name, amen.